1: Welcome to this week's installation of the weekly lecture series of the Center for Russia, Eastern Europe, and Central Asia. My name is Ted Gerber. I'm the faculty director of CRECA. And um, as I noted, this is uh, a weekly lecture series. So before we move to today's programming, let me tell you that next week uh, at the same time, same place on Zoom, that is March 4th at 4 PM Central time, uh, we'll have a three-person presentation. The three colleagues will be presenting together uh, their lecture is entitled, The Gendered Ambiguity of the Post-Communist Transitions, and that's going to be presented by Professors Janet Elise Johnson, Cataline Fabian, and Maria Lazda. And you um, can see uh, our entire schedule on the CRIKA uh, website, which is CRECA.wisc.edu. So a few logistical things as well. Uh, we ask you to please mute your mics and your video during the lecture and hold your questions until the end. And and once uh, we finish with today's presentation, uh, we'll open the floor for questions and discussion. And so for that purpose, please use the raise hand function, which you can see under the participants key, if you have a question. Uh, Also today's presentation will be recorded. Uh, So uh, I I have one other note and that is, uh, in case I, I, we don't usually get journalists or anything in our lecture series, but just in case there are any journalists in the audience, uh, today's presentation is for officially off the record. So we're very delighted today to welcome back to Krika Carolyn Savage, who is one of our, uh, probably if not the, one of our most uh, d- distinguished alumni. Uh, she received a master's degree in Russian East European Central Asian Studies and also political science from UW Madison. She's also a native of Wisconsin, so it's very great to have her here. She's a career foreign service officer uh, and she served most recently as director of the U.S. Department of State's Foreign Press Center and as a non-resident fellow currently at Georgetown University's Institute for the Study of Diplomacy, her focus is on diverse diplomacy leadership in foreign affairs. She served in other capacities in uh, U.S. embassies in Azerbaijan and Mozambique and she will talk more about that. She's also uh, was also director for Russia in Central Asia on the National Security Council and a political military officer in the U.S. Department of State's Office of Russian Affairs. So today uh, we're going to have a conversation and we're going to take a somewhat informal approach. Uh, rather than ask Carolyn to prepare a uh, formal official sounding lecture, uh, this, uh, this um, is going to take the form of a conversation. Uh, so I'll be asking Carolyn some questions and um, Uh, It'll be great to hear from her. I know that many in the audience uh, are students who perhaps are interested in uh, the uh, career path uh, or a career path similar uh, to Carolyn's. And so uh, I want to start out by trying to get a sense of uh, the various positions that one can hold and that, you know, how one moves from one position to another within the Foreign Service. And uh, because Carolyn has now been at it for quite some time, Uh, perhaps you could start, uh, please, by giving us an overview of your career, starting with your first posting.
0: Sure, Um, absolutely. But may I just, first of all, start and say thank you so much for the invitation to to speak with you and to speak with your students today. I only wish that we were in Madison. (laughs) I saw a, a great photo of Lake Mendota and the campus and And just uh, remember fondly the last time that I was invited to meet with some of your graduate students there, and I I really recall the time very fondly, and and hope we'll have sort of as active and sort of engaged of a conversation both ways um, today. Um, Really, really enjoyed sort of even along the sidelines and after the the sort of official talk, having the chance to talk with your your students. So uh, I hope we'll have those opportunities um, as well. Um, It's it's great. It's great to see you, Um, especially in this COVID era. um, It's great that we're able to to do this, and I thank you and applaud the efforts. I know um, technical and logistical efforts to do this sort of thing (laughs) are sort of, uh, you know, not exactly new challenges nearly a year in, but still um, are formidable obstacles to that human connection. That I hope um, you know we're able to sort of uh, circumnavigate today, but I guess to answer your first question, you know, trying to get a grasp on how the foreign service career works, um, I mean, really, it's it's quite a straightforward sounding process. You just take the exam, and it's offered three or four times a year, um, and you take the written exam, and then um, wait a while longer, and then take the oral exam, and um, the the Key big hurdle for me personally, it might be a hurdle for for students or um, you know potential future applicants is always the security clearance as much as the health clearance. But the security clearance for folks with a lot of time in the foreign service for me took three years. Um, wow,
1: <laughs> you know, three years!
0: <laughs> they say that they want to recruit people who have language and and overseas experiences, but then that ends up being sort of an obstacle um, to to efficient uh, entry into the service. But you know. Um, it still managed um, you know to join eventually and i was I was thrilled um, and all the more prepared I think to do so um, because of the extra time to, to sort of work and study and 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 do some other sort of deep diving into the areas that I um, was most interested in. Um, but you know I came in because I spoke French from undergraduate and from like high school middle school studies and then I studied uh, Russian. Um, starting with a uh, State Department sponsored exchange program in high school. Um, and then I continued studying Russian through college and studied abroad in college and then continued um, studies in my graduate years. Um, I came in with French and Russian, and the State Department knew it. So that really did shape the two first assignments that I um, was given. And the first two assignments that we get in the Foreign Service are directed assignments. They give you a very long list of 90 or 100 places that you could go. You rank order them, and then it's really just the luck of the draw in terms of what you end up with. Except for people who tested in language, it's really not the whole world that's open. (laughs) They really did pick me for Luxembourg, my first post, because I spoke French and they needed someone to go with 33 French, like professional level French immediately to help out um, during the European Union presidency. It's a great disappointment to me to be assigned to Luxembourg. <laughs> I was hoping really? to get Asia or, you know, do something a little more adventurous uh, right out of the gate at um, 25 years old. Um, but they sent me to Luxembourg and it ended up being a great first experience because it's this tiny little embassy and like a laboratory of all things um, diplomatic that happen are done by a very small number of people. So I learned a lot during that tour and ended up wearing basically every hat throughout the embassy. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I was again disappointed, frustrated when I was assigned to Belarus for my second assignment Uh because I had been offered to be the public affairs officer in Turkmenistan or do consular work in St. Petersburg. And I and public diplomacy coned, which meant that I checked a box saying that I want to do public diplomacy when I took the exam and I thought, oh, I would love to do public diplomacy in Turkmenistan, but I really like to go back to St. Petersburg. So I said, I'll go to St. Petersburg. Um, they sent me to Minsk. and I was like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm going to do consular work in Minsk. It's going to be pretty boring. Well, it wasn't boring at all. Um, about five months into my tour, they kicked everyone out of the country except for me and uh, three of my colleagues. And it ended up being I ended up being, I think, incredibly well prepared um, from my Luxembourg experience to help basically run everything that 35 Americans used to do um, with four people, um, four diplomats. There were still about 120 local staff. So um, that was a great experience, both of them. I was disappointed to get the assignment, thrilled in the end that I was there um, to do to do the, the work. And both of those were two-year assignments, as those were sort of directed assignments. They're pretty standardized at, at two years. And after that, you know, I had been given the advice that you should come back to Washington to learn how the Washington policy making process works. Um, whereas we sort of implement the policies at posts you really do make participate in the policy making process um even in a very junior position as i was in at the russia desk um you know, in very significant ways so um I uh, went back to the Russia desk, as I think um, you you mentioned in your introduction. I did the Paul Mill and foreign policy job for Russia at the time that we were just starting the reset with Russia. Anybody remembers that still
1: <laughs> in 2009?
0: <two>, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seems like the distant memory <laughs> compared to the last few years. But um, it was an interesting time to be doing a lot of work sort of building up the cooperative elements of the relationship. Um, and and working on a lot of the sort of big pieces of that, you you know, between Iran cooperation and Middle East peace, worked a lot on Afghanistan and Afghan transit because we were really building up our force presence. Um, In Afghanistan at that time, we needed Russia and Central Asia um, to a great extent to to cooperate with us on um, sort of legal grounds, but then military um, transit um, through their countries. So it was on the grounds of that work that I was recruited, as you mentioned, to go to the National Security Council, um, where they let me work on um, Russia and Central Asia policy, um, Mm. which was a great opportunity. um, And I think just, you know, it was at the right place at the right time. um, And um, well, you know, it turned out to be a very formative and very exciting time um, for my career. Um, At the same time then, I was getting married um, to a man who was an Africanist by vocation, um, and he left the Marine Corps to join the State Department, and we agreed that for our first assignment, we would go to Mozambique, and we put all of our eggs in the basket of lobbying the world to give both of our careers a chance um, in Mozambique. So we, I left the National Security Council and moved to be a public affairs officer in Mozambique. I was in charge of about an 18-person team running all sort of media, um, cultural affairs, educational programming, and civil society support um, for our 800-person mission in Mozambique. Uh-huh was great. And it was a total change of pace and way outside of my uh, sort of academic and and professional experience that thus far, um, but a a really great learning experience as well. Um, I admit after three years away, I was starting to get a real hankering to come back to the region and we bid then on um, Azerbaijan. So we um, got joint assignments in Azerbaijan, um, where we served from 2016 to 18. Mm -hmm. And then so those that it was a three years in Mozambique, two years in, in Azerbaijan because they didn't let my husband extend, so we weren't able to stay three, um, three years. And then we came back to Washington again. Um, um, I mean, mainly just to get our feet back on American soil, and then and then get ready to go back out again. So we're going to Kazakhstan in
1: August. Oh, exciting!
0: It's pandemic, <laughs> but it's going to be exciting, and it's going <laughs> to be a three-year tour um, in Almaty.
1: So. Wow. Okay. Well, that's great. Um, you probably know that we have a tight connection between UW and Nazarbayev University, which is yes. in Nur-Sultan. But uh, if you ever make it over to Nur-Sultan, uh, it would be great if you checked in with uh, some of our colleagues who are over there. Oh,
0: absolutely. I think I'll be there about
1: once a month. So. <laughs> yeah. <Indeed>. yeah. <laughs> um, so then, I mean, before I asking this question, just a few quick follow-ups. Um, so, so it sounds like you know uh, you, you're you're. In terms of like where you go for each posting. I mean your typical postings last for three years, it sounds like. And then you have a little bit of say, but not total freedom in terms of where you go next. And is that fairly typical of uh foreign service officer careers? It you know, you get some discretion, but not, you know, free will, so to speak
0: yeah, I mean, the first two assignments are very much directed. um only really it, it, people who came in with mm-hmm. the language had a sense of where they might end up uh, for those two tours. Everybody else, it was really like a grab bag of countries. And it's you know a really interesting experience trying to weigh Indonesia versus Sudan discuss. you know, <laughs> I mean, uh-huh. you just um have to figure it out. But after those first tours, i I mean, I've come out of all the bid cycles feeling as though I, my choices and my research and my um, my you know, drive to go to the places is very much shaped where I've ended up. Um, I mean, I've gotten my first or second choice I think every time I've bid. Um, so it hasn't been, you know, well, as, that's great i mean as that's encouraging to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's the first two directors.
1: <laughs> so so you also mentioned that uh people with language skills language training it's some uh, it takes longer for them to get a security clearance so i want to ask you about that is that uh what is the reason for that and um you know is it uh, does the government trust people who speak foreign languages less than uh people who only speak english <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if i would go that far enough <laughs> I, I'm, I'm exaggerating i
0: mean to be clear, this happened long ago. And, um, you know, I've been in 17 years now. um, So hopefully things have sped up by now. Um, But I would say that every place that you've lived requires an extra file. And that requires a different set of people Uh. to go and knock on the doors and make the phone calls to all the people that you've known. And if you've been in touch with a lot of foreigners, well, then they're going to call, you know, and and dig a little bit deeper. So they kind of make you do an exhaustive list of foreigners that you've lived with and then have been close friends with and had close contact with. So it's it's a hard, right? <laughs> 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 of course, you want someone who has the ability to connect, and yet, yes, yeah, that
1: um, extra bureaucratic these extra vetting, extra you know, background checks and so forth. Right. okay well uh so you know, you received a master's degree or uh, the uw or joint master's degree and um i know we have a lot of students who are either currently in master's programs or else uh, undergraduates who are thinking about uh, perhaps undertaking master's level study so i'm curious how you see your master's uh training fitting into your career did, did it you know was it useful was it a waste of time was it just a uh, Uh, kind of a credential. Uh, Could you give us some examples of how it may or may not have proven useful to you to to do that master's?
0: So I found it to be wildly useful in many different ways and still continues to be um, for a lot of different reasons. I mean, not just the language, which seems like the most sort of obvious and sort of almost tangible, you know, mm-hmm. uh, demonstration of, of, you know, what I sort of can take away and, and put to work, but also the the sort of disciplined writing process, the reading and then briefing, analyzing um, in a written form and an oral form is really something, uh, you know, both the written form and the oral form that you have to be really good at. And mm-hmm. and having had this sort of master's level um kind of training that I got at, at, at Madison with the Krika program was was um you know in, yeah, undoubtedly very helpful um, to make clear and persuasive and also sort of fast and regular briefings um, is just part of the daily if not hourly work of the diplomat. Mm. Um, and I also would say, you know, I really think the multidisciplinary approach of my Krika training was very helpful. Um, in a lot of ways. I mean, the basis in, in sort of the broader areas that I studied there, including like literature and history, in addition to and geography, in, in addition to just, you know, politics, which sort of people, when you think of diplomacy, okay, it's mm-hmm. mainly political, government related. Um, no, it's really, um, you know, the basis to connect with people is actually much, much broader than that. And so doing the work on the ground, um, that has been a benefit, but um, you know, also, I got to the Russia desk as a very junior officer. I'd been in like five years, I think, by the time I was the Paul Mill officer in this big job. And there were about 15 or 16 of us on the desk at that time, of whom, of which, uh, like, uh, maybe two to three of us spoke the language, mm-hmm. and very, f- I mean, maybe one other. She actually had a PhD from Austin and in the field. And um, she and I were the only two out of 15 who had serious academic training in this area. And, um, you know, I was charged at the time, I sort of volunteered to set up this briefing series where I brought in a bunch of academics and think tankers to to brief the desk, because most of the desk, that is the people making the policy on a day-to-day basis, didn't have a background in Russian uh, and Russian studies and Russian areas. Wow. So uh, I know it seems so hard to imagine, right? Uh, yeah, but... It's a little
1: hard to imagine. It's a little <laughs> scary to think about, actually.
0: It is. And so, you know, But guess who my first briefer was? It was Fiona Hill. She was our first briefer. And I managed to line oh. up all these people um, to come and tell us, you know, how they saw Russia. and And, well, it was great, you know, 15 mm-hmm. of us around a table trying to learn everything that we learned in a master's program probably wasn't as as thorough as as it could have been, but it was a a start, um, and I was really well poised to be able to help
1: inform inform the group, I thought. Um, All right, well, that's good to know, then. So for all you MA students out there, it's uh, well worth your time to uh, do lots of writing and learn the language really well and all that stuff. Uh, So, you know, for a lot of us, uh, the whole uh, U.S. government policymaking and diplomacy processes are somewhat opaque. You know, we hear on the news that the U.S. is doing this or the other. Uh, but of course, we recognize that the U.S. government is a big, complex animal and that its various pieces don't always see eye to eye. And there must be you know, internal debates and conflicts among different agencies. So um, maybe you could give us some insights into what happens you know, on the, for, for somebody in your the positions you've held uh, when there's conflict within the government you say I mean just to take an example like maybe the defense department the department of state have different uh policies with respect to a particular issue what what goes on behind the scenes if you give us uh obviously without naming names I guess uh, uh, when when those kinds of conflicts arise
0: I don't know why that example just tickles me completely because <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I mean there are so many conflicts in the policy making process and the policy implementing process there's like this you know in the the sort of inside the beltway sobriquet canon there's always the where you sit determines where you stand uh, which is one that everyone knows because Mm. like your bureaucratic loyalties sort of determine your position um which seems strange right we all think we're sort of sweet generous somehow independent and we control our own fate (laughs) but um you know in many ways you know people line up um behind their especially in these hierarchical organizations um mm-hmm. um you know people, sure. people really do um you know take the direction of their leadership um and 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 the you know dod versus the state department um is a great example i certainly from the 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 example that i pointed to that i really spent the most time on at the um Russia desk and at the National Security Council working on transit to Afghanistan um, through Russia and through Central Asia. I mean, this was at a time when we were relying on Pakistan entirely to get all of our troops and materials to Afghanistan. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, all of the people um, who at the State Department who were working on Afghanistan, including Richard Holbrooke, who was still the special representative at that time, were determined to come up with an alternative route because they saw Pakistan to be not a fully reliable partner. Turns out down the road, that was true. And they eventually shut down the transit routes. But by that time, we had we had undertaken years of diplomatic negotiations to get Central Asian (laughs) governments to get Russia to agree to lethal transit of materials through planes flying over, through trains um, coming through, um, in support of Afghanistan's stabilization. And it was um, a very difficult diplomatic dance to get the Defense Department, not just to come along begrudgingly, but then to even activate those routes and start using them. I remember personally having to you know, do my best to persuade uh, the people in, uh, who were sl- doing the bureaucratic slow roll. We know it's OK. Yes, yes, we say it's fine. But then we don't do anything. Um, uh-huh. We had to. We had so to. Passive think-
1: aggressive kind of resistance oh. to. Bomb. Oh,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I remember one, one meeting that we made happen where Richard Holbrook talked to a whole slew of generals and basically was booming at the top of his voice saying, you know, anyone in this room who thinks that we're better off relying on Pakistan than Russia can get up and leave right now. (laughs) It was his way of saying, like, we're going to get this done. And, you know, we did within weeks sort of start the planes flying and the trains rolling. Uh, But it really took um, sort of bureaucratic maneuvering to figure out like who's actually the hold up and then how to to bring them along at the end of the day um to to get that to work and and I continued you know throughout my time at at the National Security Council to really have to work on DOD because they were not fans mm. of, of any kind of military cooperation with Russia mm. as an organization and and you know we can understand why? Um, and yet, in certain <laughs> circumstances, it was very beneficial for the U.S. interest to actually do that. Um, what we could in that sphere. I would uh, say. A, very...
1: <laughs> go ahead. Sorry.
0: Oh, no, go ahead. I was going to mention. Let's... I mean, I think that in all the embassies overseas that I've ever worked at that have a large interagency, there's always these sorts of dilemmas. Um, and you know, we had sort of a similar issue in Mozambique where we had you know over. Uh, half a billion dollars a year in um, assistance that we were giving to Mozambique, um, mainly for health funding, but our incredibly brilliant scientists, um, community, and this AID and the CDC offices were not interested in spending time or allocating time or energy or resources to telling the Mozambicans um, about Um, all the services that we could provide and in helping to persuade them to let go of their sort of stigma attached to HIV and AIDS treatment that we were giving like $350 million a year to support infrastructure and supplies. Um, But it really took, you know, some of my like best diplomatic work has been the behind the scenes and the finding your allies to make sure that you can know do the thing that makes sense um on a strategic level even when people might might prefer to look at their own little piece of the pie and say
1: I see so so you have to use your diplomatic skills not only <laughs> in dealing with uh foreign entities and governments but also to you know work within the US government to oh, yeah. what it is you, wow that's that's a very uh, uh interesting perspective um so you know on a similar topic um i'm sure a lot of you know particularly given uh where we are right now in terms of uh the the new administration uh i you served under now i mean i i, I don't know exactly <laughs> but was this is now it will be your fourth uh, different presidential administration i i think uh or at least your third yeah, I'm with
0: w so um, okay you
1: came in with w right so so it's the w obama trump and now biden so what is it like when you have, you know, change at the top and and uh, these administrations have varied quite a bit in terms of their foreign policy. How do you deal with that uh, uh especially you know when new political appointees come in at the top of the state department or uh you know in various capacities uh, uh what's it like, you know, having to deal with the I mean, it must be challenging I would expect. Uh, <laughs> <six years. laughs>
0: yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I guess I'll start the answer, by answering that, um, in the field, it's a little bit different, and by that I mean working in an embassy or consulate overseas. It's quite different than working in in DC on many grounds, but it's including dealing with political appointees. Um, I've only worked for two political appointee ambassadors, and they were both in Luxembourg on my first tour. Where, you know, another you know point to hat tip to the uh, MA training. My Luxembourg ambassador. Um, she she said to me during a country team meeting of senior staff what's all this about russia and i was <laughs> like how much time do you have i mean we we ended up spent, you know scheduling an hour long meeting and then spending like 4 hours one afternoon trying to explain you know russian history and politics again in a nutshell <laughs> boiling down sort of all my training and research and and knowledge that i had to had to offer at the time Um, but I mean, in general, I guess I'd say, yeah, I've spent a lot of the election periods overseas. So I was overseas for the 08 election of Obama, um, 12 election of Obama. I was in 08. I was in Belarus 12. I was in Mozambique 16 for um, Trump's election. I was in, um, Azerbaijan. There's often these perceptions of, um, you know, fear of major change or jubilance over perceived um, biases for for the country that you're in. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, in in um, in Belarus, folks were concerned that Obama was going to come in and sort of be soft on Russia, and that would negatively influence Belarusian. Um, affairs um, in 2016 in Azerbaijan, there were people who were jubilant because of Trump had a building with his really? name on it in Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. People's perception was that this meant that he was really interested in cooperation and doing business and it was going to be great for Azerbaijan. Um, but at the end of the day, most countries that we serve in overseas, um, our policies don't change that much. Um, in terms of what we do every day, this massive body of work continues with some changes and mm. nuances and tweaks around the edges. But I mean, we still have this you know, this civil service, this foreign service um, that is still doing a lot of the, the sort of cooperation and partnership work um, sort of regardless of what's happening in Washington. And, you know, the exceptions would be the, the massive countries that really are in the headlines, which you know usually are countable on one or two hands. Um, but um, even in those countries, I'd say there's still a, a lot of work that diplomats are doing that isn't changed that much. Um, so, you know, it it feels slightly more insulated overseas when you have a, a change of power. Um, in DC, it can be, um, you know, quite different and quite different feeling. In part because you're part of the policy making apparatus, and sometimes you're a lot closer to the political um, leadership. Um, so you're watching and, and involved in decision-making processes, sometimes watching people make bad decisions and wrong decisions. (laughs) And, um, you know, I certainly find it to be, um, challenging to watch bad decisions being made. I also find, um, you know, it's a, it's a strange, um, it's a strange sort of, um, load to, to, to take up, to decide, you know, how much. Of your own blood, sweat, and tears to throw on the table and and throw down and try to make your voice heard and argue for a better position. Um, you know, it's, it, it can be it can be really sort of heart wrenching if you don't win those battles. But I do enjoy the, the opportunity um, to to do so and and to hopefully get some victories along <laughs> along at least the sidelines um, for making better policy and making better decisions. Um, but I do think for all of us, I mean, we have to sort of know our red lines and what what isn't going to fly for us and what isn't going to work for us um because you know i think we anybody who's been in service for a while has had to uphold policies that we don't believe in um that we don't buy into that we don't think are great Um, and you know Mm. it's it can be hard
1: (laughs) yeah i can only imagine it must be very Frustrating, uh, but but there is. I mean, so so you're suggesting that there are some occasions where you know you can push back a little bit, or at least you can raise some concerns that you might have uh, without fear of retaliation or fear that it might adversely yeah. affect uh, your chance for promotions or things like that. I mean, is that you know do do foreign service officers? Uh, is there some kind of policy to you know to guarantee that you have? at least are able to express concerns if you have them or?
0: Yeah, you know, it's difficult. Um, it's difficult to know how far you can go and how to to go there um, appropriately. There are awards that our union give uh, every year at numerous different levels and for different specialties um, for descent, constructive descent. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, the challenge of course is always that you're always beholden to your boss and your boss's boss um and if your boss or your boss's boss disagree with you or don't have Mm. your back then you can your annual evaluation can suffer and your promotability can suffer and then your next job um, is affected by that so um you have to figure out again sometimes the hardest diplomacy is the internal stuff um how much you can you know build your allies um in whatever it is it is um the fight that you're about to to go into um so like yeah. if i was trying to bat with the dod i all my bosses were lined up that that's what i was going to do and i was going to try like hell to get them on board and if i couldn't then i would bring in bigger guns
1: <laughs> so mm-hmm. so but yeah so but, but i mean that but i that's the case in any organization right i mean yeah. it's not you be yeah. U.S. government you have to Get your boss and, and then their, your immediate boss and then their boss on board. Otherwise you're really risk. A, so that's that's but it's good to know that at least there's not this kind of top-down only a flow of directives and so forth. There is some oh, leeway for discussion.
0: Absolutely. In fact, I was sharing an office at Georgetown two years ago with this colonel, this army colonel, who was also a fellow there. And, you know, we, we sort of joked about it um, that you know the the directive and his sort of joke was that the directive comes from the army general and everyone says, yes, sir, very good sir. Goes about implementing the directive. Whereas in the state department, you know, the general gives the directive, the senior level official gives the directive and everybody commences their debate on whether or not (laughs) 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 So um, they're just different cultures entirely, I think in in that is just, you know, again, sober cat that I think reflects the the different cultures.
1: Yeah, that is very, very interesting. Um, Okay, so another one thing, so so far we've talked mainly about sort of internal government operations and uh, the implementing policy and so forth. Uh, But have you had the chance when you've been posted in, uh, you know, embassies or other uh, areas abroad, have you had the chance to work with local populations? And you referred a few times to those, but could you tell us more about that? I know a lot of people who are considering foreign service, you know, they're interested in the diplomacy or the, the politics of it, but they're also very interested in engaging with the local population. So what opportunities present themselves to do that?
0: job oh yeah I mean that's why I wanted to do this job right I loved living abroad I loved the contact with local populations I love living with host families and hanging out with students and um, teaching them and um, getting to know them and their different perspectives so yeah that, for me too that was a big concern coming into the foreign service because being a student you um, you don't have this official american um sort of you know you know badge or albatross depending on your perspective <laughs> around your uh around your neck but um i really actually have found myself to be um as connected to the local populations as I have the energy and time to give. And I really try intentionally to make it a focus to get out of those embassies and get out into the world. Um, and and actually, sometimes the, and I think usually the by virtue of my position, at least thus far overseas, I've had entry into so many great um, opportunities to meet some of the most dynamic and interesting and, and fabulous people um, that i could have ever hoped for um, particularly you know I've, I've been the public affairs officer in three countries now in belarus and um, azerbaijan and mozambique and that's the mm-hmm. the area of the embassy that's really charged with all outreach beyond the government <laughs> including journalists and teachers and students and um, civil society organizations so you know, in the PAO job in Belarus, I was funding almost all the major civil society organizations in the country. Um, pers- You know, I was the only one left. So I was the main decision maker. And I got to know all the heads of organizations. We were funding independent media. I knew guys who were printing their newspapers in their garage. And I was funding them with such happiness um, in my heart because um, I knew their story. And I knew, you know, sort of what they were putting into <laughs> their, mm-hmm. their work. Um. And, you know, we had American corners in all of these countries as well, um, 12 of them in Belarus um, that, you know, there were basically librarians who doubled as English club leaders and English conversation club leaders and film club discussion club coordinators. And, you know, in these corners of Belarus where there's very little going on and there's very little regular American presence, um, they sort of, um, I I don't wanna say they're like, extra American ambassadors, but they were people who loved us and loved learning English, teaching English, and um, talking about the sorts of values that we're trying to promote. So whatever moral support and, and other support that we could provide for them, I loved doing and I, I got to know all, you know those, those librarians very well. And um, I, I say that some of the cultural work that I did in Belarus too was extremely um, powerful and impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, in a place where we couldn't do a lot because there wasn't a, a huge amount of um, independent media that had wide distribution, you know, we did a ton with uh, doctor, documentary filmmakers. We'd bring over filmmakers to run, um, you know, master classes and then documentary film festivals, and I would use that opportunity to bring together opposition activists and artists and mm-hmm. actors and. You know, it it was an interesting uh, constellation of like-minded people who wanted Mm -hmm. interesting kinds of changes for their societies. and then, you know, the educational programs, I really feel um, in Azerbaijan as in Belarus and in Mozambique, those English language teachers throughout the country are some of our best allies. And they're trying to teach this um, language and get their hands on the best kinds of materials and we can help them do that. then that's great work. So we help fund their conferences and their trainings and would go out to visit them and help them however we could. Um, everywhere I went. I got to know some fabulous English language teachers um, through that time. You know, in Mozambique, I had this Martin Luther King Institute head who was a professor, and he was teaching debate to high school students. And I said, how about if you do on American policy in the run-up to the elections in 2012? And he did this whole series for a semester um, that culminated in a sort of, Headliner um, event at our inauguration or at our election party, where these high school students were debating and taking on sort of the personas of the vice presidential candidates and then the presidential candidates, and then there would be a democratic process at the end, where all the people at the election event were voting for their, you know, the top debater. And, um, you know, it was really uh-huh. a civic discourse um, <laughs> training that um, that was that I thought very powerful.
1: Um, Wow. Well, I mean, that's quite a wide range of different uh, experiences. But clearly, uh, it's been a big part of your your job. And, uh, and I realized that uh, I mean it makes sense at a place like Azerbaijan that, that English teachers would be, you know, a group that uh, you know the U.S. Embassy would work with to try to, you know, give them materials and resources. Because uh, I guess you probably uh, are limited in terms of uh, the sort of, you know pro-democracy types of NGOs and other contexts the U.S. would
0: Yeah, sometimes. Though, you know, we managed to restart our our, um, funding support to civil society organizations in Azerbaijan when I was there after they had been closed down by the government for four years. Um, We restarted our sort of small grants program um, basically for any kind of sort of innovative democratic um sort of uh organization that you know wants to do some kind of democracy building effort um often getting these organizations from nothing to something um Mm. with you know as little as twenty five thousand dollars but um and made the world of difference so i really Uh, love seed funding for these tiny organizations that would otherwise not exist
1: um was yeah i mean that's really important Uh, okay, so what would you say? Uh, what has been some of the you know great pick? Maybe one or two of the most difficult challenges you faced in your job. Uh, and then maybe one or two of the most rewarding experiences.
0: Challenging, you know, when I when you ask me about challenges, what immediately comes to mind and rewards, truthfully, is like the people aspect of the mm-hmm. equation more than like the high policy. Um, sort of abs more abstract um but you know nonetheless very meaningful <laughs> um uh work that i've done but i mean i really think about that the people as much as the policy can be can be really both very challenging and very rewarding um you know i think uh, we don't often think about like the leadership and management aspects of these sorts of jobs but i mean even by the time i went to well, Belarus has sort of accidentally became in charge of a very competent, capable group of 18 public affairs members in Mozambique as well. Um, In Mozambique, unfortunately, upon my arrival, I couldn't quite account for what two of my staff members were doing. And I uncovered malfeasance. Um, Mm. They were selling access to our exchange programs and our educational advising programs. That is, if you want to learn how to study in the United States, you can pay me some money on the side. And, you know, it took me a while to excavate that problem and then to fire them and then rehire other people and train them. That was very challenging um, because I couldn't um, talk publicly to the other staff members about what was going on. And I had just arrived. Um, so it made me probably look like a, a monster for a while until until some of the parents started coming forward and saying, I gave them all this money and they promised me an exchange program and we're like we don't sell exchange programs
1: oh <laughs> um, goodness yes
0: yeah that was really depressing but um fortunately we turned it around and i think changed the narrative that the united states doesn't just sell access to the highest bidders um so
1: oh that's
0: no. <laughs> pretty okay. dangerous one to have out there you know um honestly yeah, Front, I guess I'd say there was a death in my team uh, in mm-hmm. Azerbaijan. Uh, just forty-year-old woman. Who, she had cancer, um, and she, you know, after about a two-year struggle, she died. And she'd been with the embassy about twenty years. She'd been there basically since graduating from college, uh, even before graduating from college. And that impact on our team was so profound because mm-hmm. a lot of them had known her since they were basically <laughs> children, and. Um, you know, I, I really felt like that was one of the biggest challenges for me personally was sort of shepherding the team and, and, and supporting them, um, and, you know, finding resources and ways to honor her and support them. Um, but, um, you know, well, and yeah. I, I guess, um, you know, on the, on the sort of other side of the coin on the, ch- on the rewards, I also found the, uh, that the people that I connected with were very, um, um, important to me. Um, one very close friend of mine, he became a very close friend. He was an English teacher in a, and a theater. Um, Sort of scholar um, and performer uh, ended up coming to the United States to study and when he thought you know I can get a full scholarship to go um, to Finland to study American theater and I said why don't you go to New York <laughs> like come on and we ended up having this conversations for a year in which I convinced him to do that and, um, and he's still here now and is very happy um, and you know it's relation it, the relationship continues and that is very rewarding in and of itself but um, now, we also were at the beach in Delaware and two or three years after I left Belarus and a girl selling ice cream was like, "Oh, yeah, you came to visit my college." And I I'm like, I have barely any memory of that visit because I did so many of them, but I, you know, it was really touching to me that, you know, um I was able to to make such an impact on her um and know one of a long oh
1: yeah that must be wonderful to I mean because you must be you know doing all these things where you're not even aware of the impact you're having but then to get evidence of that later on uh that must be very rewarding
0: absolutely um sort of on the policy side if you're interested in that as well I Mm -hmm. guess I'd say one of the most challenging um issues for me to personally deal with um that immediately comes to mind when we ask about challenges is Um, you know, the policies that I've had to uphold that I didn't agree with at the time. Um, One was renditions policy, if you remember, during the beginning part of the Iraq war and, um, I was in Luxembourg and I was in charge of human rights and I was the most junior person in the embassy. And I was in charge of talking to all the European parliamentarians about our policy that they all hated. And I remember thinking, I hate it too. I can't believe I'm supposed to talk to them and tell them something that I don't believe in. Um, and I I really ended up spending um, better part of two weeks with the, the best briefing materials I could find and, um, studying what our policy was and, and, and scrutinizing it for the most compelling case I could make and keep my sort of integrity, my internal feeling that I was not selling someone a bill of goods. Um, and I Mm -hmm. found some great points in John Bellinger's like 500 page brief. And I used those points and I, and I made relationships, um, with those folks that you know continue to this day, um, even though you know I was I was essentially arguing a policy they totally disagreed with and and argued with me on, um, but that was difficult for me um, internally as well, um, even to figure out how to do
1: that. Um, I can only imagine that that was early in your career too. Your very first uh, uh, well, I'm, I'm glad you stuck with it despite that difficult experience. Um, yeah. So uh, I, you know, I I wanna ask you what advice you'll give our, our students. But before I do that, I have one other question then we'll open it up. Um, and that is, uh, so you you, know, you worked on Russia policy in DC, soon you'll be posted in Kazakhstan. Um, sure, we're very interested to know, uh, or, uh, many of the audience are interested to know, what are your perspectives on uh, the main US goals currently moving forward? I mean, we maybe won't, don't wanna get into the past so much, but in those two, with respect to those two countries, with, with respect to Russia, and also to Kazakhstan, which is, of course, less in the news, but still very important. You know, what do you see as the main U.S. objectives moving forward, the main strategy and so forth?
0: Yeah.
1: Well,
0: in a nutshell. In a nutshell. <laughs> I could give you the long version or the short version. But, um, I mean, as I sort of alluded to earlier, I think the vast majority of our broad outlines of our policy will actually not change that much for either country or, you know, the region. I mean, we are... Pretty consistent uh, about wanting to support this, you know, sovereignty and security, economic prosperity and democratic development of all of these countries. Um, but you know, how we do so and to what extent we emphasize each of those factors does change. I do think that, you know, on Russia, um, well, for the whole region, I think we're signaling that the Biden administration is signaling that we want to be more vocal on human rights sort of across the board. Um Not only just you know towards um, China and Iran and uh, Venezuela as we sort of did for a while, Um, Mm. but um, you know I think with you know uh, on the Russia beat I think there's you know policy reviews are ongoing for the whole swath of countries, but um, I think they're going to be looking closely at you know more targeted sanctions following the Navalny um, poisoning and the, the crackdown on the protests. Um, but, and, but we're looking at how to support sort of democratic actors and democratic development. I think, you know, they're, they're clearly signaling a desire, and I think it's a good decision to restart the work on, um, uh, you know arms control cooperation um with a new start and beyond, um which you know, ha- having lagged, I think it got us into a much more dangerous situation. So trying to balance the where does our strategic interest actually um you know move us towards cooperation. And I think to what extent can we parlay that into further broadening um cooperation in international organizations on broader issues like climate change that are going to be a priority. Um, as well as, you know, Iran issues that are are going to be a priority, again, to try to re-engage and redevelop a cooperative policy um, vis-a-vis Iran. Um, But, um, you know, balancing that against the further sort of focus on human rights um, and democratic actors. You know, in, in Kazakhstan and in the broader Central Asia region, I think similarly, we've had like similar goals for about the last 10, 10 15 years. Um, the main difference being that there was that period that I was ta- speaking about earlier where the Afghanistan buildup mm. and the focus on Afghanistan really did, may took away the question of why Central Asia, why should we pay attention to Central Asia and DC's attention was pretty well focused on Yes, Central Asia counts and and Afghanistan lands, you, know, you can debate whether that in and of itself was enough. But that was part of the reason why Central Asia was um you know very prominent. And now I think it's it's just um more true that the Central Asia in and of itself has to try a bit harder to compete for that kind of um the kind of political attention, the kind of economic attention um uh, from, from the DC policy makers. But um the Is there a
1: sense that uh, it's kind of, you know, Russia and China have been very involved in the region. They've really ramped up their uh, efforts, you know, China economically, Russia militarily, of course. Is there a sense on the part of U.S. policymakers that really that's kind of Russia, China territory that are, you know, although we should have a presence, of course, it's not really a main focus?
0: I, I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, I'd say that maybe the the increased, um uh, focus on the great power competition, and you know, Biden administration is still developing its China policy, but I think is is clearly signaled that China focus will continue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that almost having China and Russia so close by um, to the region and so prominent in the region almost strengthens um, the the focus on on Central Asia, and and yet um, without Afghanistan, it's it's harder. Turn on the light. <laughs> it's getting dark in here. Uh, mm-hmm it sort of makes it um you know i mean the the impetus to work more on you know uh, electrical and energy connectivity and um it, you know economic investment and development um projects becomes um sort of more prominent than than necessarily just um i mean the security um cooperation though that as well um continues to be discussed i'm well aware of discussions ongoing with kazakhstan um that are that are promising in that domain and i think at least kazakhstan mm-hmm. um um, but, um, perhaps, a, a, in a, an increasing manner and um, Uzbekistan as well, as well, historically Kyrgyzstan have really understood that their neighborhood, their dangerous neighborhood gives them an impetus as well to have other strong partnerships. So, um, mm-hmm. that gives us an opening as well.
1: Oh, that's good. I and mean, so, so there, so, I mean, to, to sum up then you don't see a major sea change in policy, uh, uh, as a result of the change in administration, there might be some movement around the edges, but the, the nature of the whole uh, foreign policy process is such that there's gonna be more continuity than change.
0: I think you put it very well. Yes. <laughs> oh, uh,
1: well, I'm just uh, taking it, taking my key from here. Okay, then my last question before we open up then, you know, you know I, I know we have in the audience, a lot of people who are considering uh, diplomatic careers. What advice would you give to Wisconsin students? I mean, being from Wisconsin yourself, you know, it always seems to me that you know the, uh, that uh, people uh, go to school in the East Coast, they're right in the thick of things, or DC, it's probably harder for someone from Wisconsin to you know contemplate what a career is like, how to prepare for it. Do you have uh, any you know, tidbits of wisdom or, or advice that uh, students in, in our programs might uh, benefit who are considering a, a career similar to yours?
0: Absolutely. I mean, if you think you're interested, if you want to give it a whirl, then go for it. I mean, and by go for it, I mean invest in the process. And there are materials out there, and they're much more easily available now than 17 years ago. Um, where you can take practice tests, you can um, talk to people, live humans, um, <laughs> about what this diplomacy career is like, and start to have like discussions where you inform yourself and you can read of course but you know having discussions about what the life and and the work are um are is i think very really helpful to get you sort more conversant in um mm-hmm. you know some, you know what really this is this sort of career involves um i mean you can continue working on your your briefings and your writings which i can encourage before but you know talking to anyone you can and if you have the chance to intern or work abroad at an embassy or at the state department itself in washington then do so i mean the the only impediment is always bureaucratic you have to start ages in advance in order to get the internships it's like a year in advance um in part because of the security clearance process but it's just um, a protracted process but i think you know when you're If you're trying to decide if this is something you want to do, there's no substitute. Um, I had the advantage, yeah, at Georgetown as an undergrad to talking to a lot of retired um, foreign service officers and sort of hearing from them about their careers. And, and that's part of what got me excited about it. I mean, I had no idea. I was from Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. I didn't know any diplomats growing up. I just knew I liked international stuff. <laughs> and I liked mm-hmm. people and languages and living abroad. Um, But, you know, there are real people who do these jobs and um, it can be a very, very thrilling and very rewarding um, way to live and work. At least, uh, you know, I when I joined thought, okay, I'll try this for a few years and see how it goes. I haven't I haven't felt as though, um, you know, I've stopped learning or growing in the course of 17 years at it and part because Mm -hmm. of the sort of built in. It changes in what the actual job responsibilities um are
1: the rotations through you know, yeah <laughs> but i i still find keeps it you on your toes i guess yeah, so.
0: yes definitely um but i also still feel a real thrill to um being the you know representative of the united states and helping to both uh, you know personify and and humanize this abstract concept that so many people around the world i think still find um, you know, intimidating or, or scary or, um, you know, I, I don't know, <laughs> not not human necessarily. I think that sort of last three feet, as we sort of put it in the public diplomacy world of the human contact is still really a big component of, of doing the job and doing it well. And um, I really encourage you to give it a try <laughs> if you're at all interested.
1: Yes, well, absolutely. And so on that note, uh, let me express you know, my gratitude, I'm sure many people share uh, my gratitude to you both for speaking to us today, but also for doing what you said, for representing uh, the country and giving a human face to uh, the United States and it's very uh, valuable and important work and uh, we all rely on uh, people such as yourself and hopefully people who are in the audience will, will follow in your footsteps and, and do the same. So, uh, you know, now is the point where, you know, I'm going to end the, the final part and open it up to questions and answers, but let me take the opportunity, you know, to <laughs> applaud on behalf of this one, we can't really do uh, applause so well on Zoom. Uh, so thank you very much. And now we have time for some questions. So um, I see there's a bunch of comments in the chat. I, of course, oh, have to read those. So I, I'll, but the, I see, so please use the raise hand function and then I'll recognize you uh, as you have questions um, so the raise hand function is in the participants window at the bottom left, and um, just give a moment for people to formulate their questions. I don't see anything yet. Uh, people can be shy. Uh, no need to be shy. It's a. I see there are some questions in the.
0: I see you guys talked with my husband about clearances. I'm glad he's oh, actually. Oh, I see you're talking to you about that. that. <laughs> He's a diplomatic security agent, so he knows this stuff better than I do. So I'm glad you hopefully got your questions answered that way.
1: Okay. Uh, questions, comments? Anyone? I mean, normally I would step in and kick these off, but I've already been asking a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> a
0: lot of good questions. I
1: Yeah, I see, right. there questions about security clearance in the chat. Um, um, oh, okay. We have a question from Michael. So, Michael, you want to turn on your mic and ask your... Yeah, that might help, actually. <laughs> That's great. Thanks. Um, I had another application process question. Uh, I was interested in knowing, I think state is unique among the various uh, foreign relations agencies, uh, in the fact that it does not polygraph applicants. I was wondering, is there a reason for that? And is that likely to change?
0: It would be, I would be hard pressed to answer why we don't polygraph, but we don't polygraph. Um, unless, um, and I learned this today from my husband, who I think you've been corresponding with, um, unless we go on a detail to um, another agency that normally requires polygraphs for its employees, then in in that case state employees would be polygraphed um, prior to going, and then when they come back. um, Those other agencies for certain countries Uh, routinely polygraph all of their employees going overseas or coming back, and certainly for employment um, with at least the the intelligence agencies um, and, you know, the FBI, CIA, DIA, they all polygraph routinely as part of the hiring and then sort of ongoing um, regular requirements as well. I don't know why state doesn't. We simply don't. Um, And I don't know anyone who has been polygraphed working for state. Okay,
1: thanks. Okay, now we have uh, David, David Kuter. I'm not sure how to pronounce your name, but David. yes. Why will you be in Almaty rather than Nur Sultan?
0: <laughs> Good question. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Yes, Nur Sultan, um, the great capital in the north, um, is the home of our embassy, and um, as a sort of, um, I mean, legacy of um, previous times, the. Um, The consulate uh, in Almaty is still actually larger than our embassy in Nur-Sultan. It has about 260 people, um, and it is the major regional hub for, I think, seven agencies work throughout Central Asia and the broader region, um, including CDC and AID, um, DEA, uh, Foreign Commercial Service. Because um, Almaty, I, th- I think for a number of different reasons, but in part because it has such a, so many um, international connections uh, that are very easy to make, um, mm. organizations, including a lot of um, foreign embassies, actually have the embassies still um, if, for the region in Almaty so that they can serve um, you know, more than one capital, um, and, and get around easily. It's just the largest and most metropolitan city um, as well. So I think it's um, just a bit of a legacy from, from a previous era when Almaty was the capital.
1: Well, from what I hear, you know, from my regular travels to Nur-Sultan, many people in Nur-Sultan wish they were in Almaty. So maybe you're forced to- <laughs>
0: I admit I purposefully went to Almaty because it's a little more temperate Um, and I think think it's a very nice city. So
1: I hope you'll get the chance to be there. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Um, Okay, Brendan, Shoal, you have the next question. Yeah, hi guys. Um, Thank you again for everything you're doing and taking time to meet with us today. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, in terms of your transition, from your previous job to a public affairs officer. I just wanted to know what your experience was like with um, transitioning different jobs within the State Department and if they welcome that and what kind of a process that was.
0: You know, it's fairly standard um, to jump around a lot. Um, You know, there are five cones within the generalist Generalist sort of foreign service track, where you take this exam and become a, a generalist. You're signing up to be available to do a range of different work, and either the political cone, the economic cone, the public diplomacy cone, consular cone, or the admin cone, and you know, all of us check one box as we take the the written exam saying, this is what I'd prefer to be hired as. And um, depending on your experiences and your proclivities, you can end up not doing very much work in those cones at all, or doing a lot of work in your own cone. Um, but it's it's fairly standard and it's is pretty um, institutionally encouraged to do work outside of your own cone. All of us are basically... Um, Guaranteed more or less to do at least two years of work um, of consular work That is doing sort of uh, work doing visas and, and support for American citizens overseas. Um, and then beyond that, it's uh, the jobs are, are basically a function of how you apply for them and lobby for them and make the case that you're the best person to do them. Um, you know, amongst it's sort of like a regular job application, except it's a smaller pool of people <laughs> who are applying um, so. It, it, it's a pretty routine uh, if jobs are slated to be foreign service then that you will have someone you know cycling in and out after usually two years.
1: Great, thank you so much. Sure thing. Okay uh, we have another question from Anne.
0: Um, this is less about the kind of actual diplomacy work that you do. But I was just wondering, having to relocate to places that are so far away from your home in the US, what's it like and how do you kind of plan for living for an extended period of time with basically nothing? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's, you know, as much as I really encourage, genuinely encourage anyone who's interested in the foreign service career to like give it a whirl, learn as much as you can try it out. it's not for everyone because of this reason, um, and I think um, you know the lifestyle components, the lifestyle aspects of the job can be very challenging. Um, you know, even as a I was twenty five when I joined, so I, um, you know, I really felt as though packing a suitcase or two and getting on an airplane to the other end of the world wasn't that strange for me. I'd done it several times previously for internships and study abroad. Um, it's increasingly difficult, though, now that I have not only a, a diplomatic spouse that whose job and happiness is, is important to me as well, uh, but I have two children who are nearly four and seven um, and, you know, all of their sort of things, yes, um, but also their emotional needs and their friendships and their relationships with our family are really important um, as well. So uh, it's very complicated. I would say we go dark like in terms of doing anything beyond the essentials during every move for probably six months at a time, maybe three or four months prior to our move, and then three or four months after, because it's just so logistically and emotionally cumbersome uh, to manage all of those aspects. Um, you know, including the emotional part. It's hard to like disconnect like actively from your community. And then when you get to a new place, okay, the first time, okay, the second time, but the third and the fourth and the fifth and sixth time, um, make a new community in terms of friendships, in terms of, um, you know, people who you can talk to about your work. It's it is draining, there's no doubt about that. And I, I've i been pretty um, lucky and pretty intentional about trying to manage the energy of myself and my family. <laughs> we know, trying to get downtime to the extent we can have it in the form of either vacations on a regular basis um and or you know these tours back in washington well um not as 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 thrilling as moving to another foreign country um because the work in washington inherently isn't isn't quite the same kind of it's not the reason why i joined the foreign service right it's it's important work but it's not um that sort of um, thrilled thrill of the overseas lifestyle um Um, So there's not that same jolt. It is sometimes really comforting and necessary to reconnect, at least for me. Uh, I know people who go out for for 20 years and then, you know, don't come back. But I have parents still in Wisconsin. I have all my extended family is in the Milwaukee area. Um, I really like to go there. I like to see them. I like to to know them um, as well as my parents. So it's a major consideration.
1: Well, I mean, we'll be certain once things um, open up again, which uh, hopefully will be soon, uh, to have you out to campus when, next time you're uh, in the United States uh, so that you can visit uh, your friends and family. In oh,
0: that would be a joy and to visit my friends at Krika as well. <laughs> that would be so much fun. Yeah. I still remember fondly our dinner after we did a, the last
1: uh, graduate
0: symposium. It was so much fun um, to be there on campus.
1: Well, yes, it was great for us too, and I'm really sorry we can't uh, repeat that, but uh, hopefully we'll have the chance to do so in the future. Uh, okay, well, I uh, don't see any more questions, but is there any anyone have a final uh, question or comment? Uh, we're just about out of our a lot of time in any case, and uh, it's been a very rich uh, presentation and covered so many topics from the political to the personal to the diplomatic, and um, you know, we really appreciate uh, the chance to hear from you know someone wh- whose experiences in the real world uh, involve uh, the countries that uh, covered by KRIKA. Um, and so you know we we thank you once again for indeed taking the time. I uh, can see a lot of the uh, comments in the chat are, are thanking you as well, and uh, we wish you success in uh, yeah. the Kazakhstan.